Righto. Uh, today we begin our new series on Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, and even though we know it as 2 Corinthians, it's not really Paul's second letter to them at all. It's actually his fourth letter. At least it's the fourth one that we know about. Uh, two of his letters over time have gone missing. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of them was torn into little pieces and burned by those who received it. Uh, because it's the letter that Paul refers to it in this letter. He refers to it in 2 Corinthians as his severe letter. And given that he says some pretty cutting things in 1 Corinthians, and he says some pretty cutting things in 2 Corinthians, the severe letter was probably very cutting. Um, so 2 Corinthians is the second of the two letters that remain today. Now, I'm actually going to give a more fuller introduction to this next week, but just for now, I think I need to say this. For us to really get a feel for this letter, in some way, we have to enter into a place of very deep hurt. And that place is the broken heart of a pastor. Now, some of you will probably have a bit of trouble just grasping just how deep this hurt can be. Uh, I didn't have any trouble at all grasping it. As, as a pastor, my heart's been broken in a church before, and I, I understand Paul's feelings very well. But let me try and give you a bit of a grasp of how he would have been feeling. He deeply loved this church in Corinth. Paul's the one who, who brought the gospel to them. It's through Paul's preaching that they came to faith. But when Paul moved on to take the gospel into other regions, as apostles do, others who called themselves apostles, well, they moved on in. And they elevated themselves as leaders. And they tried to usurp, they tried to take over Paul's position as a special leader in that church. And they set themselves up as apostles, um, even though Paul was the apostle who began that church. And they criticised Paul, and they slandered him, and they accused him of all sorts of things, and they brought false teachings into that church. And it seems that it only took a few people to come into that church, and it poisoned the whole place. That the church in Corinth was a broken church. It was a church of factions. And we saw this well and truly as we studied his first letter to the Corinthians, which, is, which we finished around about a year ago. And it wasn't only the church that was broken. Paul's heart was broken too. The, the things that they said about him were untrue and hurtful. But I think what hurt him the most is that at least a few of his converts people that he had been responsible for bringing to Christ and teaching them the gospel, at least a few of them listened to these false teachers and they turned against Paul. And as we read this letter, we're going to encounter some of that hurt. And knowing that Paul's heart was broken is going to help you to understand more about what he's really saying in this letter and where it's coming from. Um, we're going to really encounter his hurt. At times, he's going to, it's going to seem like he's almost lashing out. At times, it's going to seem like he's wearing his heart on his sleeve. At times, he starts using sarcasm. This is a very real and a very emotional letter. 
You know, some people criticise the expression of emotion in church. Um, well, they'd be criticising Paul. He expressed his emotions. This is a very real letter involving real people with real emotions, and we get to read their mail. But you know what? As we begin to understand the depth of Paul's heartache, it makes this letter even the more amazing. He doesn't just have a good old cry and a good old whinge about the way he's been getting mistreated. What he does is he takes them back to Christ. And the depth of his theology, there's some really amazing spiritual gospel gems in this letter. And I reckon just as a diamond is formed in a place of immense upheaval and pressure, so are some of the most amazing verses that we find in the Bible, and some of those are right here in this letter. And so I'm in awe that from his place of hurt, from the depths of his broken heart, he takes them and us to Jesus Christ because Jesus is the healer of hurt and he's the restorer of all things broken. Right, so with that very brief introduction to what is a rather complex letter, um, we're going to now have today's reading. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Righto. Uh, Paul begins his letter by stating who he is and by claiming his authority. Now, it's sort of, remembering this is a letter, this is sort of like the letterhead that you get on a professional letter today. So, for example, during the week, Robin had the first of what's going to be many follow-up appointments with her orthopaedic surgeon. And so we got to drive four hours to Toowoomba for a five-minute visit with the doctor and four hours home again, which was a lot of fun. 
But what, when we were leaving, he gave Robin a letter to bring home to her doctors here. And at the top of the letter was a letterhead. And the letterhead, what it did was it says, hey, my name is Dr. So-and-so, and then it gave, it, it gave his qualifications. He had an honours degree and a Bachelor of Medicine and a Bachelor's of Surgery, and he was a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons specialising in orthopaedics. Now, that letterhead, what that's doing is it, it, it's laying down his credentials. It's telling us that, hey, this bloke has authority to tell our local doctors about the state of Robin's broken leg. And by the way, uh, it's not real good. Um, so little update for you. Uh, he actually said it's gonna be at least three months full weight, uh, no weight bearing at all, completely no weight bearing for at least three months. It may even be as many as five. So um, we weren't expecting that. But uh, anyway, so if you can keep praying for her healing. But what that doctor does with his letterhead, it, it gives his name and his authority. And, and that's what Paul is doing at the beginning of his letter. He says, look, I'm Paul, I'm here with Timothy. But then he gives his credentials. He lays down the authority that he has to be able to write this letter in the first place. Um, I know uh, a minister that I, that I knew in the past and... Uh, this person once told me that, oh, I disagree with a lot of what Paul says and when I get to heaven, I'm going to take him to task over a lot of the, his teachings. And I thought, really? What's your authority? What's your credentials? You know, you've been to Bible college, big whoop. Paul wrote around about half the New Testament. I mean, that's a pretty big call. But what gave Paul the authority to write this letter? Well, he describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, practically, an apostle is one who is sent. But biblically, an apostle is it's actually a designated position of authority within the church. It's an office that somebody holds. The, the apostles had a, a very special position of authority. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. And they were the ones who would take the gospel message out into the world. And for us, it is the testimony of these apostles that is now recorded in the scriptures. The apostles were the ones who had the authority to teach what the gospel is. At some point, the church had to know what's right and what's wrong. What is the true gospel and what's a false gospel? And it was the role of the apostles to teach the truth, to uphold the truth, and to expose deception. Uh, by the way, my, my advice to you today would be to be very wary of anyone who claims to be an apostle today, because uh, some people do. Um, there is apostle-like gifts. Some people can have something like a gift of apostleship where they um, have an ability given to them by God to be able to take the gospel out into the world and to preach the gospel in places where the gospel has never gone before. But no one can actually claim to be an apostle as the apostles of the New Testament. And because by doing so, they're claiming for themselves an authority that we don't have the right to claim. But if an apostle 
is one who is sent. Who sent Paul? Who designated that Paul would be an apostle? Well, Paul didn't choose to be an apostle himself. In fact, he claims that he, he sees himself as the least of the apostles. We saw that in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. He, he didn't choose that position for himself. God did. It was God who chose him. And it was God who sent him. And later on in this letter, we're going to see how Paul compares himself with his antagonists. The antagonists who, who claim to be apostles themselves. They'd moved into Corinth and said, we're, we're apostles, we're taken over here. But they were false. But Paul simply describes himself here as an apostle chosen by God. So that's the letterhead. Next comes the address. To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now, if Paul was writing to us, uh, he'd probably address the letter something along the lines of, to the church of God at St. George, with all the saints who are in the whole of the Maranoa and Warrigo. Right? If he was writing to our brothers and sisters at Bonjean, by the way, hello, Bonjean Church of Christ, if he was writing to you, he would probably say to the church of God at Bonjean with all the saints who are in the whole of the Darling Downs. Now, does that help you to get a bit of a grasp about our connectedness with other Christians? Paul wouldn't just be writing to Bush disciples, you see. The church of God in St. George stretches across all denominations, but it's bigger than just St. George. It stretches across the whole region. We should never see the local church as being our own little patch. We shouldn't see it as being our own denomination or our own individual congregation or even our own family group within a church or without a church. Authentic disciples of Jesus, no matter where they worship, no matter what denomination they are in, authentic disciples of Jesus are our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the sort of connection that we should have. And that's what Paul reminds us of, the way that the church of God is connected, not just locally, but across a region. And... This is the way I see it. I'm not going to claim that this is the word of God. But I reckon that the closer that we are located geographically, the more connected that we should be. If we don't fellowship with other authentic disciples of Jesus in our own district, shame on us. We should be fellowshipping with all Christians in St. George. We should be fellowshipping with all Christians across our whole region. Um, by the way, um, hot off the press, uh, an opportunity for a bit of fellowship, a bit wider across the areas. Uh, the Bonjean Church of Christ, who, who use these messages every Sunday, we've got a pretty strong connection with Bonjean now. Um, they've decided they're going to hold a church camp up at the Bunya Mountains um, August this coming year. Uh, I think they've chosen August 7th to the 9th, which I understand is when we're having our show holiday. And they specifically chose that weekend to make it easier for us to join with them because they've invited us to join with them. 
And wouldn't it be good for us to be able to share a bit of fellowship with, with, with the, another church that's pretty strongly connected with us, but you guys never get to see them. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm sharing this now in the message because I also want to let people know who are listening to the podcast and, and who watch the video that if you're interested, if you want to come along and get to know us, because there's people who listen to this podcast right across Australia and across the world, um, you're welcome to come and join in the camp with us. So just keep an eye on the website, www.bushdisciples.church, because um, we'll put up some details there over the next few months. Um, so that's August 7th to 9th in 2020. So if you're listening to the podcast and it's 2024, you've missed it. But that's okay. Okay, that's, that's the end of the ad. Now, uh, the church of God is much bigger than our own little patch. That's what Paul's getting at here. And I think that Paul is making this important point for a very good reason. Even though it's only in his introduction, he's, he's doing it for a reason. You see, there's a fair bit of false teaching and, and a fair bit of error that's going on in the church in Corinth. And he's reminding them, hey, you lot, it's not just about you. It's not your church. It's the church of God. And as the church of God, you, you can't go and decide for yourself what you're going to believe. You can't decide for yourself how you're going to behave or what you're going to do. Because you are, because it's the church of God, you are connected to something far, far bigger than just yourselves. It's far bigger than your local community. It's far bigger than that little fellowship that you're a part of. You cannot decide for yourself how you're going to behave. You cannot decide for yourself what is legitimate to teach. And what we're going to discover as we go through this letter is the truth that the church of God is something that shares a common faith. We share a common truth, a common fellowship and a common teaching because we have one saviour and one Lord. And to an extent that, that a church starts saying, well, we don't believe that anymore. Times have changed, you see. We're going to now change what we believe. We believe this now. We can't do that because we are not our own little individual show. We are connected to something far, far bigger. And we have one saviour and one Lord. So it's from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's to the church in Corinth but he reminds them that they're connected to all the saints in the whole region. And then he gives them a greeting. What an amazingly simple summary of the whole gospel his greeting is. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so simple. But we could spend all morning unpacking those few words. Grace. Grace and peace. Grace is the action. Peace is what results from the action. You know, many people desperately long for peace. Some even work for peace. They strive for peace. But it eludes them. 
World leaders travel the globe, peace envoys we call them, and they put together peace accords. We hear about these sorts of things on the news all the time. How long do these things last? Not very long if it's in the Middle East. Not very long if it's got anything to do with North Korea. Not very long if it's anything to do between the USSR and the USA. You see, people are looking for the result. They're looking for peace, but they're putting the cart before the horse. There is no peace without grace. It's not just any old grace. It's not just cheap grace. It's the grace of God. And it's the peace of God. Grace is the action of God. Peace is the result of that action. And that's what makes it so powerful. It's because the activity of God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ is what produces peace. Do you want to experience true peace? Real peace? You can't have it. You can't have it unless or until you surrender yourself completely to God. You can't have true peace and everlasting peace until you surrender everything that you have and everything that you are to God and become a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Grace is an undeserved gift. Just like Paul didn't think he deserved to be an apostle, I know that I don't deserve to even be a disciple of Jesus. It was while I was still a sinner that God put his grace into action. It was while I was still a sinner that Jesus died for me. And even though you rebelled against God, and even though I rebelled against God, and we put, God, we put everything else in front of God, because of who God is, he deserves to be number one in our life. He deserves to be the priority of our life in everything that we do, every part of our being. God deserves to take pride of place, to be most prominent in our life. And it was while we still put everything else in front of him, it was while we were still rebelling against God that Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Now, people have said to me, Michael, you can't say that we're enemies of God. I just don't believe in God. I'm just, no, no. Even if you do believe in God, you're still an enemy of God until you're one of his children. And this is what people don't get. You're either for Christ or against him. You're either one of God's children or you're one of his enemies. And it's while we were still enemies of God that Christ died for us. That's grace. A gift that we didn't deserve. And when we repent of our sin and we yield our whole self to God, that's when the grace kicks in. And that's when we get peace. 
It's a total regeneration, you see. That's what being born again is all about. The old sinful man is the man that was in conflict with God. Um, Or the old sinful woman is the woman who is in conflict with God. And to be born again as we put to death our old self and we raise up this this new person, born again into faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He makes peace between us and God. Husbands and wives look for peace. And with a little bit of counselling and a lot of jolly hard work, they might be able to improve things a little bit in their relationship. But the root cause of their conflict remains... Those who rebel against God and continue to reject God's grace cannot possibly have peace with God for a start. And if you haven't got peace with your heavenly father who is merciful, what hope do you think you have of maintaining any kind of significant, lasting, relational peace with somebody who is a sinful human? It's got to start by having peace with God. And yet I have People who are not Christians say to me, oh, Michael, do you do a bit of marriage counselling? I said, well, I always tell them, well, yeah, I can do a bit of marriage counselling, but it won't do you any good unless you're a disciple of Jesus. I can't offer you anything unless you give your heart to Jesus because that's the starting point. Consequently, I haven't done much marriage counselling. Anyway, we could spend all day on grace and peace. But I think we'd better move on. Now, as we read that Bible reading this morning, I'm not going to give out any prizes because I don't think you deserve a prize for working out the key word. It was pretty obvious. Ten times in five verses, Paul said, comfort. The key message for us today is to be comforted not comfortable, all right? You see, God's nature is to be merciful. But how does God express his nature? Well, by comforting. Who does God comfort? He comforts those who are afflicted. Therefore, who gets to experience the mercy of God? Who gets to experience the comfort of God? Those who are afflicted. It's not those who are comfortable who experience the mercy of God, it's those who are afflicted. And as I was thinking on this, I was thinking, I was reading and I was thinking, you know, the more I read the New Testament and the more I read these letters that are written to the churches in the New Testament, the more I continually get convinced that the same old is the same old. The same old errors that plagued the early church are the same old errors that plague our church of today. Now, for me to explain that, I need to preface it with this. We need to realise that as we study this letter, we can't jump to too many conclusions. We can't read too much into it. But we do need to be mindful of two things to get, to get the most out of it. A, we're reading someone else's mail, right? Don't forget, this is a letter, a letter written to a church. We're re- reading someone else's mail. And B... We're only getting one side of the conversation, right? So 
We don't know everything that's gone on in the background. We do know that people have been bringing reports to Paul. We do know that he's received a letter from the church. We do know that he's visited the church. He knows what's going on. But we're only getting one side of the conversation. But even so, it's quite easy to tell when Paul is mounting a defence. And that's what he's doing here. Why would Paul be defending the fact that he's suffering? Why is he mounting a defence about him being suffering? Well, the most logical possibility is that's one of the accusations that's getting made against him. And you can just imagine these, these false apostles there tearing Paul to bits. Oh, yeah, if this, if this Paul was a real apostle, he wouldn't be suffering like that. I mean, look at us. We're apostles and we're not suffering. Therefore, God's blessing is on us. We're prospering. We're apostles, not Paul. And they were using the fact of Paul's suffering as evidence that he wasn't a real apostle at all. And we see more of this coming out as we get deeper into the letter. Now, let's bring this forward to today. There are many, many popular churches today where the whole purpose of the minister, or almost, is to present an image. And it's to project an image of what everybody else wants to be. The pastor needs to project an image of success and health, charisma, strength, vitality. He has to project an image of prosperity and power and influence. And it all becomes about the cult of the personality. Here's this bloke. He's, he's happy, healthy, successful and prosperous. He's got the glamorous wife. He's everything that everybody else wants to be. Therefore, this bloke must have everything together. That's got to be a leader worth following. By the way, it doesn't leave much hope for, for, for me as a pastor, does it? Out of all that, I do have the glamorous wife. I've got the glamorous wife, hey? And she's not even here. She's out at Sunday school, doesn't even get to hear it. But you'll all tell her I said that, hey? Yeah, that'll get me points for sure. Or, or she'll go, that's probably more likely. Yeah. But... Many people see a leader like that and go, that's the sort of person we want to follow. I want to be like him. I'm going to follow him. The thing is, they're not following Christ. And sometimes I've had people say to me, and they've been thinking about the affliction that somebody else has been suffering, and they go, oh, what they're doing, it obviously can't be God's will for them, because if it was God's will, it would be so much easier for them. You've probably heard people say things like that too. What a nonsense. Paul would have none of that sort of talk. In fact, suffering and affliction are the way of Christ. And because it's the way of Christ, it's also the way of his followers. And in fact, there's a pattern here that he shows us. Christ suffered. And because Christ suffered, he's able to comfort those who suffer for his name's sake. The apostles suffered, and in their affliction, they received comfort from God through Christ. And then when other disciples of Jesus suffer, 
They are able to receive the comfort of God as the apostles comfort them. Do you see the pattern here? We receive the comfort of God and then we can pass that comfort on. And this is so much so that Paul could say, we suffer so that we experience the comfort of God and then we can pass the comfort of God on to you when you are afflicted. And yet, isn't that pretty much the exact opposite of what most of us desire? Let's be honest. Who doesn't want to be comfortable? And when we're comfortable, we don't need comfort. And that's the image that the modern church is doing its best to try and project. Come to Jesus and you'll be comfortable. Come to Jesus and your life will be as wonderful as our pastor's. And they attempt to try and hide the suffering. They want to hide every hint of imperfection. Why? Because that doesn't fit the image. It doesn't fit the image that we're blessed. But Paul turns that completely on its head. Authentic disciples of Jesus and especially authentic leaders in Christ's church suffer. How's that for an advertisement, eh? We'll preach the gospel, come to Christ and be a sufferer. It's not a popular message. But the Christian life, exemplified by the apostles, it's a real paradox. It's a paradox of affliction and comfort at the same time. Right? So God comforts us in all our afflictions. But what sort of afflictions Paul's talking about? We know that we receive the comfort of God when we grieve. We know we receive comfort from God in sickness. We know that we feel we, we receive the comfort of God in pain. We know that we're comforted by God when things go wrong, when we have a bit of bad luck. We know that in the midst of this drought, God gives us the comfort we need. We know that God gives us comfort when we're bullied. We know that God gives us comfort in all sorts of ways, but that's not the afflictions that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about when we suffer for the sake of Christ. We suffer as Christ suffered. Right? He's not saying if you suffer affliction, then you're going to receive the mercies of God, therefore you might as well get a whip and start whipping yourself. By the way, throughout history, some people have done that sort of thing, thinking that that's going to bring them closer to God. It's not at all what he's talking about. We suffer as Christ suffered. And we usually think about the sufferings of Christ as we usually just go straight to the cross. We go to the biggies. We go to these, the scourge of the whip and the horror of the crucifixion. But Jesus suffered in many ways. Here's just a few examples. 
many people hated Jesus. It wasn't just at the end. It was right throughout his ministry there were those who hated him. And many people will hate you too, simply because you're a Christian. And it mightn't make sense to you, why would they hate Christians? Christians are nice people. Yeah. But what they hate is you've been obedient to God, and they haven't. It's like the naughty kid hates the goody-goody because they're doing the right thing, and they know they're doing the wrong thing. They thought Jesus was crazy. Even his own family tried to have him sectioned. <laughs> he was there and they, they come along, they turned up, Jesus' brothers and stuff. And, uh, look, pay no attention to him. He, he's out of his mind. Um, he's just a little bit crazy at the moment. He's not himself. Just They thought he was crazy. And one thing's for sure, anyone who seriously follows Jesus, if you are a serious follower of Jesus... People are going to think you're crazy. You're a zealot. You're a religious nut job. You're one of those crazy born-again Christians as opposed to what apparently the normal Christian is. By the way, there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't born again. But if you are serious in your faith about following Jesus, people will think you're crazy. Why? Because everything that they count as important means nothing to you. Because you're following Jesus. Jesus was constantly watched. They were always looking for the slightest hint of wrongdoing. And as disciples of Jesus, we need to expect that too. As a disciple of Jesus, you will be targeted. The world will judge us far harsher than what God will ever judge us. And they'll judge us far harsher than what they judge themselves. The slightest little hint, they're looking for a way to catch you out, just as they did to Jesus. Jesus lived a life of poverty. I mean, Jesus had every opportunity to do really well for himself, but he was essentially homeless. And as disciples of Jesus, wealth and prosperity should be the last thing that motivates us. And as we follow the will of God, something that I've learned is rarely does God's will include financial prosperity. Jesus was mocked. They made fun of him. They ridiculed him. They made jokes about him. As a disciple of Jesus, you'll be laughed at too. Expect it. But then, of course, Jesus' suffering progressed and he lost his freedom. They gave false testimony against him. They lied about him. They committed perjury to get him convicted. They tortured him and they crucified him. And as disciples of Jesus... The commitment that we have made is that we take up our cross to follow Jesus. Now that may mean a loss of freedom. It may mean that people will tell lies about you to try and get you into trouble. It may mean torture. It may mean death. 
And all of those things are things that Paul faced. But he didn't try and hide his suffering. He said, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Um, Asia, by the way, isn't what we consider Asia. For them, Asia was um, modern-day Turkey, that sort of area. And it's interesting that Christians today are persecuted in Turkey too. But at times, Paul thought he and his mates were going to die. But there was purpose in in the affliction. There was purpose in their affliction. It it was so that they wouldn't depend on themselves, but so that they would rely on God who raises the dead. You see, that's where our faith takes us. That's where our hope lies. Our hope doesn't lie in this life. Our hope lies in the resurrection. The faith of Paul is that God would save them even from death. It wasn't that God was going to stop them from being killed. But even if they are killed for the sake of Christ, he knew that the power of God was to raise the dead. And that is the hope that we have. God will deliver us. When Jesus returns, all of those who have died in Christ will be raised. That's what we look forward to. Uh, This life just pales into significance. Why do we try so desperately to hold on to this life? Why do we try so desperately to have a comfortable life so that we're not in danger for Christ? When we look forward to the resurrection, when Christ returns and we'll be with him in glory. And in many places of the world, Christians are persecuted for their faith much more severely than what we are here. And of course, it's only a couple of weeks ago now that Ting Ting left us to return to China. And when she returned home to China, she was going home to a place where she is not free to worship the gospel as what we are here. Sorry, she's not free to worship Christ and she's not free to preach the gospel as we are here. And a very practical application for us, who at this stage we aren't being persecuted quite so harshly, A very practical application is in verse 11. It says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You see, the church in Corinth, at that point, they weren't suffering the same level of affliction that Paul was suffering but they could help Paul. How could they help him? Prayer. By praying. And by praying, many would give thanks. Who was it that was going to give thanks? Well, to the extent that their prayers were answered and Paul remained alive, he was able to keep preaching the gospel. And everyone who responded to the gospel could give thanks that they got to hear it. And they could give thanks that by hearing it, that they could believe. All because there was a church praying for Paul in his affliction. I don't know if you've ever 
consider just how important our prayers are for the persecuted church. I know some of you pray regularly for the persecuted church. Some of us might pray when we think about it. Some of us might just not think about it very often. But our prayers for the persecuted church are really important. We pray that they would stand firm in the face of persecution and that the gospel would be preached and that many would be saved. And those who are saved will give thanks to the Lord for those who have prayed that those who preach the gospel can continue to preach the gospel even when they're afflicted. But we should also pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ here and around us. We should pray that when we are afflicted for the sake of Christ, and let's, let's not pretend we're not, we are afflicted for the sake of Christ. Whenever we preach the gospel to a world who doesn't want to hear it, there'll be some level of affliction and it is getting worse and worse in, in our country. So when we, we should pray that when we are afflicted for the sake of Christ, no matter what form that takes, that we would receive the comfort of God. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you wouldn't be comfortable. How's that for prayer? I'm praying that none of you and that I wouldn't be comfortable. But I also pray that as you suffer affliction and persecution for the name of Jesus, that you would be comforted, that you'd be comforted by God. And I hope you pray for me. Because... Every time I prepare a message, what I do, I start out by, I actually print out the Bible reading on about triple line spacing and then I scribble notes all over it. As I pray and as I read and as I seek God, I just scribble little notes all over it. And one note that I wrote on this Bible reading was this. As a pastor, how I suffer matters. And that's the challenge that, that has been for me. If I look for a comfortable life, I won't receive the comfort of God in my affliction. And if I haven't experienced the comfort of God in my affliction, what use am I to you? Because I can't give the comfort of God to you in your affliction. So don't seek to be comfortable, but experience the comfort of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this amazing gospel message that, that we have to take out into the world. And Lord, I want to confess to you today, and I suspect there'll be others here who, who confess this same thing. Lord, there's been times when I have held back from sharing the gospel, and the whole reason is because it would make me uncomfortable. There's been times when I haven't shared the gospel with someone because I thought I might offend them. There's been times when I thought that people would ridicule me for doing so. There's, 
There's been times when I've thought that they'll just try and pick me to pieces. God, forgive me. Forgive me for putting my comfortableness ahead of you. And Lord, I pray that we would not be a people who seek to be comfortable. Lord, give us a, a, a passion to, to share the gospel out into the world, no matter what the cost. And Lord, we look forward to experiencing your comfort as you comfort us in our affliction. And Lord, we pray for the persecuted church. We pray for those who are at the risk of life, at the risk of their own freedom, that they share the gospel into the town and district where they live. Lord, we ask that you would keep them strong. And Lord, we ask that you would comfort them in all of their afflictions with the comfort of Christ. And Lord, we ask that their word would be powerful and that you would bring many to faith in Jesus' name. Amen.